Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Popular Culture. I'm your host, Pete Kunze. And with Brittany Michelle Edmonds, I'm here today to interview Jesse David Fox, author of Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work published in 2023 by Frere Strauss and Duro. Welcome, Jesse. How are you today? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you both. Well, we're glad well, you're here. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to start off by just asking you some framing questions about the book, about what your plans for it were and how you came to write it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, I sort of backed into it a little bit. Um, it started because I wrote a, a list for Vulture, my employer, where I ranked every Adam Sandler movie, but also approached... <laughs> that ranking um, as a sort of a thought experiment of like what value systems mean and what criticism means and how it relates to comedy. And specifically, can you take a person like Adam Sandler whose work is critically derided and and, and rank them? Because hypothetically, they're all bad, whatever bad means. Um, and so as a result, I worked over, honestly, I worked on that ranking for a couple of years and it ended up being like 25,000 words long. And it was the longest thing hypothetically I put out. And I go, well, 25,000 words, that's like a third of a book, right? So then I, I emailed my agent and I go like, can I write a book about Adam Sandler? I already wrote 25,000 words. Um, and essentially, like he sort of talked to a few people and, and he felt like that wasn't the um, best plan because there just sort of wasn't interested. There wasn't an interest for a book about Adam Sandler, like the one I was going to write, which was sort of, again, like really theoretical. And he goes, would you just write a general book about comedy? And I and I honestly did not know what that would mean and how to make it a book and not just like a bunch of essays and how to decide. And he just said, make a list of comedians you feel like you have thoughts about and um, thoughts you have that are sort of abstract and see if you could apply one to the other. And honestly, that thought experiment was wildly successful. I don't know if that's like actually what everyone does when they start writing a book, but like truly was the greatest advice. And then what would happen was just sort of like, I made a list of comedians I thought about. I go, what are the things that I think about when I think about them? What are the things that keep on coming up? And pretty quickly, I realized like, oh, I, ha I had 11 or so, 10 or I think I had 10 at first of like concepts that I had a lot of thoughts about that felt like you needed to understand one to understand the rest. And could I put them sequentially so that by the end of it, someone would have a, a really holistic picture of how all these things intertwine? Because I, um, as a person who writes about comedy professionally, I felt um, 
these sort of conversations would happen and it's a, a little bit like the fable of the people and the elephant. I can't even remember what it is, but essentially people were talking about different parts of the elephant. And I'm like, we need a we need an elephant so then we can all sort of have the same conversations and people um, would be able to sort of interact with comedy the way that I do, which I think is, um, I, I think I have a quite you know deep relationship to it and definitely a sort of like um, very thoughtful relationship to it. So that's sort of how I, I, I came up with the approach. Um, and then once I pitched it and someone was like, we like that approach, then I was like, I guess I gotta, gotta write that book. Yeah. I don't know if Pete has anything on this, but why I was so curious about that is because in the beginning, you kind of signpost a lot about, you know, where comedy as an art is, and there are things that can help with progress or regress. But then there's also a couple of interesting asides where you say, you know, there are so few comedy journalists, which means there's so few comedy books sort of written for a broad audience. And so I was curious about, you know, what your goals were with this book in terms of, and you kind of just said, right, like yeah. the chapters look the way they do because you wanted people to have a kind of language for approaching comedy as an art with certain components, like yeah. formal qualities. Um, but I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about audience because, you know, you have published it with a kind of trade press. Um, and, and I imagine it will have an audience beyond sort of fellow fellow journalists. So I wonder if you want to say something about that before yeah. Pete kind of dives into the book a little more deeply. Sure. I had a variety of post-it notes on my desk when I was writing it. And one was you're, you're writing this book for fans, not comedians. Um, what I learned later is a lot of comedians are fans. So actually they respond to the book most. But it was sort of like um, mm. my initial inspiration in a sort of abstract way was ways of seeing um, where I felt like in some ways comedy wasn't being seen like the, it, like you were watching, but you were not like s understanding that an art form was happening. And mm. I wanted to, there's sort of this war that has been going on with comedy for forever. This sort of like good and evil, however you want to categorize it. I think both sides think of the good and the other side thinks of the evil, but like, Ultimately, there there are people who have always been trying to push it forward and people are always trying to push it back to being, you know, I describe whatever back means in so many ways throughout the book, which is either like comedy as a service industry, comedy as this is just jokes, comedy as this thing you shouldn't take seriously because it's just a thing you're supposed to laugh at. And and so then I'm writing it for people who are who love this thing or who are open to it and want to understand how they can. You know, I, I try to think of it as a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. I didn't want to end a bunch of arguments. I wanted to give people the vocabulary to engage with the comedy they they like. Um, so yeah, I was aiming for as massive an audience as possibly would be interested in such a thing. I mean, my hope was you'd get comedy fans and also people who um, I was inspired by, I was on a podcast and someone, well, I was on a, I can't even remember if this get this anecdote gets in the book, but I was on a podcast and someone goes, why are you here? You know, I was talking about comedians during the pandemic and he goes, why not, not in a mean way, just sort of, how did we get to this point where I care what comedians are doing right now? And then, and that question is kind of what I wanted to answer, which is like, I think there's a lot of people who are sort of engaged with culture who see these comedians have all this status or have all this cultural cachet and it seems like it kind of came out of nowhere and and it didn't come out of nowhere um and now though and that we're here how, what do we do now that we we've given comedians this much um you know cultural power 
Yeah, one of the things that struck me in the beginning of your book was this discussion of comedy as kind of a generation-defining force, mm. right? I'm, um, I'm 39 years old, so a big part of my popular culture training was Comedy Central, In Living Color, Saturday Night Live, um, stand-up specials. Uh, I'm not sure that's true of my students, you know? I'm not sure if if comedy means as much to their identities as it did to to people in my generation. But I'm just curious if you could kind of walk us through a little bit of your own thinking and maybe give us a sense of your own kind of uh, your cultural journey or sure, the development yeah. of your cultural literacy in relationship to to comedy. I mean, do you feel as a comedy journalist that you kind of cut your teeth or came up in a certain period for, for comedic production? Yeah. I mean... Um... Part of the thing that I realized is so like it's not like there weren't comedy fans before millennials and um, um or comedy even comedy nerds. But when I think of them, I think of like them being Judd Apatow. I think of them as people who are like, well, I love comedy, so I guess I have to be a comedian. Like there was no other option. Comedy was a thing they had to seek out, and their relationship with comedy was a thing that demanded effort. And you know, millennials mm -hmm. on forward, comedy was a thing that was just on that you had access to. And and you had so many different um, access points for it, right? It's not like you had to go to a club. You could just be a person who was watching Comedy Central for whatever reason, and then you you found the thing that you liked. Or, again, you know, like so for me, it wasn't Living Color. My dad really liked it in Living Color. He showed it to us at a at a young age. I have no idea what I was responding to. Like I just you know people are being silly, and in many ways, I think a lot of kids have a light bulb moment when they just see adults being funny, like. The, the idea that an adult can be funny, I think it's amazing to them. And then at some point, probably because it was both on Fox, I watched The Simpsons. And pretty quickly, I was like, well, this is my favorite thing that's ever existed. Like, And, and it continued to be. And then when I look back, you know, before, like a funny thing happened once I started, like I decided to try to become a comedy journalist. And I sort of had this reawakening to being a comedy fan. I was like, well, I'm not like a comedy nerd. I just... You know, like in my head, I had these comedy nerds who were like any other nerds who like spent their time like researching different things um, or being obsessed with something their whole life. And 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 then I look back, it's like, oh, I guess I've been consuming exclusively comedy as my only form of culture for 25 years straight, you know, whenever that was or 27 years straight. And it was just a thing you had access to. I watched so many comedy specials. I didn't even think about it. I was just sort of like, all right, well, this is television, right? I watch, you know, like Comedy Central especially as like a young guy was like, I was the demographic they were trying to appeal to. So I was like, this seems like the thing that I watch. And, um, and, but, and again, that was my entry point. Right. But I think there's tons of different, as I, as I know, there's tons of entry points, right. It's like, um, you could have watched in living color. Then also at the same time, the, you know, deaf comedy jam was on the air. There was, um, Comic View, which is a show that I watched every single night. And again, as I said, like, I didn't think of myself as a comedy fan. I literally watched stand-up every single night before I went to bed. Um, and like what you, the WB and UPN were putting on. So like, obviously that's, that's another entry point. I, as I think, as I know, like RuPaul was extremely famous in the nineties and gave us sort of entry point for a more queer perspective on comedy in the nineties. And, and it, and there's a million examples. Um, and then you had a bunch of comedians who were also raised caring about comedy and then the internet allowed it. You have access to it and a certain amount of um, 
with YouTube an access to like what better comedy could look like. You're not just accepting what has been in front of you. You're not just going to a comedy club to see anybody. You have opinions and taste and you go to see a comedian on purpose, which is kind of the big breakthrough. Um, I will say, I think comedy is really important to Gen Z or, and f- I think um, though they're still too young to really know what they're going to do as cultural consumers. Like we'll see once they have purchasing power. I think comedy is really important to them. I think what they count as comedy is different than what we think of as comedy. So it's going to look differently. And I don't love that. I, I you know, like I, as a, I, I wish I was better at being like, you know what they think is comedy is cool and it cultural evolves, but like to them, it's very possible. They're like, I love comedy. Like these meme accounts are my favorite comedians or whatever. Like I think ultimately what gets defined as comedy will expand um, opposed to needing it to be sort of a, you know, top down cultural product, like a stand up comedian who has the sort of biggest special. But um, I think humor is become the um, language of how people interact online, either people trying to talk humorously or using comedy to communicate their opinions. And that seems to last um, as generations continue. Like we, it's so weird that everyone feels like they need to be funny to talk to each other now. And I think um, that's part of, that's a large part of it. Well, just going off that, um, you know, I was curious about you, you mentioned that we're in a second comedy boom and it has no signs of slowing down. And I wondered about that. I mean, you just sort of seemed to gesture to what your response would be to this question at the end of your of your answer mm-hmm. just now. Um, but I'm curious just because I feel like I've read in so many recent years about the death of comedy, right? It's just because about people sort of waning tolerance for what it is that certain forms of humor entail, right? Which is breaking taboo, crossing yeah. the line, taking up certain subjects, talking about um, um, folks who, 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 yeah, are going to get, you know, the stuff taken out of them a little bit, taken down a notch. Um, and so I, I wondered about that because I just hadn't heard that before I read your book that we're, yeah. we're in the midst of a second comedy boom. Um, and I, and it's, it's hard for me to, 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 to understand it given what Pete and you just, you know, sort of outlined about how we all grew up. Right. Yeah. I mean, we grew up, there were multiple sort of vulgar cartoons just on television, right? So the boondocks and South Park contending with each other to say really smart things about the society that we live in. That's not available in the same way um, to these folks growing up. And you mentioned some other avenues that they might look to for satire and and, and things like this, but I was just curious about that second comedy boom. You said we're in it, it's not slowing down. If you could talk about that for us a bit. Big question. If um, I'm gonna try not to (laughs) fill the next hour just answering that. I think there's a lot lot going on in, in that. I think first, um, how do I want to start this? I think the the idea of let's say the the, the I'll, t- I'll start with the idea there were multiple vulgar cartoons and 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 ultimately what you're saying is that there were multiple popular cartoons that were being broadcasted and had the access to a large audience that did this certain thing. And now I probably would guess though, like I'm not investigating TikTok, YouTube, etc. There's now five million satirical vulgar cartoons of differing levels of quality you know like level of quality i think is ultimately like that that's a different discussion but like i think people have tons of access to it what they don't have is like as many unified like these are the things and you and but what you if you just look at certain i you know like i try to just look at um the basic fact of how many popular comedians there are 
and how popular they are compared to other comedians. And you just sort of see the venues these people are playing is sort of the example. It's the most stark. And like comedians that truly no one has heard of are playing Madison Square Garden. Kill Tony is playing Madison Square Garden. I don't know if you know what Kill Tony is. I can explain it pretty quickly. It's Joe Rogan adjacent, right? Mm -hmm. But like Madison Square Garden, that's George Carlin didn't couldn't sell Madison Square Garden. Richard Pryor wouldn't even think of it. You know, like Andrew Dice Clay did, and then no one again for 20 years. Then Dane Cook did. And when Dane Cook did, you're like, whoa, he plays. Now it's like truly kill Tony is playing Madison Square Garden. Andrew Schultz is playing Madison Square Garden. I can name 10 comedians who have not played Madison Square Garden that never will be seen on television. That not like television, tel broadcast television, like would never host SNL because they don't seem mainstream famous enough. Who will play Madison Square Garden? So like we are developing all these sort of huge niches. Like it's funny to use the word niche when you, you talk about how big they are, but like really huge niches of fans that are really, really loyal, that they're going to go to Madison Square Garden because they valued to see a comedian in their element opposed to in the 80s when there was the first comedy boom. You're like, I like comedy. I guess I'll go to see a comedy club and I'll just see what's there. No, now people care what comedians they're seeing. Um and, you know, then we're at the disposal of their taste. But so when I so and then the idea of the sort of death of comedy people are talking about, ultimately, they're they're talking about their idea of what funny is, even though they have access still to the comedy that does it. What they're saying is the comedy that I like is not as popular to young people as it was to me when I was a young person. Um, and I get it like. I, 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 I'm not beyond those feelings as well of being like, why isn't, um, I'm trying to think of who's my favorite comedian of mine that like, why doesn't every, uh, I mean, like I was thinking like, I have an idea of like the alternative comedy that I grew up watching, not grew up. I like came in my twenties watching. It's like, why don't people love those people? It's like, well, they have different sense, young people, different sensibilities, but the death of comedy that comes from audiences being too sensitive. I don't see it that way at all. I mean, base one, people are still selling tickets. The people who say that type of thing the most are selling the most tickets. So clearly there's an audience for it. Um, but also, um, to do the death of comedy. Oh, the, the death of comedy because people are too sensitive can also be seen as comedy is changing because a lot of people care about comedy, which is a reflection of like what, what a second comedy boom would mean. Now, do I think it's not slowing down? After I finish the book, I and I spend more time with what the kids are up to these days. It's harder for me to necessarily say that. But the death of comedy is not going to come from people too sensitive, in my opinion. It's going to come from the thing that's going to be the death of all mass culture, which is some version of the internet and um, algorithms and AI, blah, 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 blah. But like, you know, like when I see crowd work videos on Instagram, that that to me seems like the death of comedy. That seems to me reminiscent of why the comedy boom ended in 1992, more so than, oh, you know, Shane Gillis says the R word on SNL and people don't like that. Can, can you explain the crowd work thinking there? Because I always assume they did it because they're saving the good stuff for the, the show, right? And the crowd work is just like, the cast-offs, right? It's like here you can have some of the uh, the drippings from the turkey, but if you wanna, if you want the leg, you got to sit down at Thanksgiving dinner with the rest of us. You know, I don't know if that yeah. metaphor works. <laughs> sure, yeah, I think that's perfect metaphor. I wish I had it in my book. I mean, it is. Um, it started as that, right? It started as certain savvy comedians, Andrew Schultz, the aforementioned Andrew Schultz, 
um, I think was really got credit for this, which was he realized the thing that a lot of creators realize, which is the number one thing you need to do to build following online is put out content constantly. The more content you put out, the better you do. All algorithms reward mass quantity of output and do not particularly care about quality of output. So he was like, I need to put out stuff all the time, but I don't want to burn materials. Like, well, I can do crowd work. And, and then other people saw they can also do crowd work for the same reason. But then over time, as the algorithms started really, really rewarding crowd work over all other types of things, including clips from specials, right? Then comedians, desperate to be liked, desperate to be successful. Now, they're like, well, I got to do a lot of crowd work. I got to film every set that I do. Um, and I don't know your feelings about crowd work generally. I think a lot of crowd work historically is pretty poor. Um, it seems challenging, but it's actually a quite easy thing for a lot of comedians to do. Um, and the type of crowd work that works online is even worse. It's truly as bad as um, the people making fun of it act like it is. It's like, what do you do for a living? I'm a blank. That's a dumb job. I don't know what that is. And everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. It's in the moment, right? It's like a really, really bad magic trick, but it's a really quick magic trick. Um, and that, and the algorithm is rewarding those things. It is more um, because it's sort of easily transferable. Like you don't have to have, you know, it can spread internationally because you don't have to have great English skills to understand that a person is just shooting someone down. And then here's the danger. And, and when I say um, I have fears, it's sort of like people... In the book, I say comedians have said they have not found audiences to be more chatty or more looking to be crowd worked in the time since publishing or, or since my last draft. And now I have heard more comedians say they go to shows planning on presenting their art and people are talking a lot more. They're, they're looking to be part of it. And what becomes extremely cynical is you're turning a live space, which is a beautiful thing, hypothetically, into a content creation space for both the performer and the audience member. Because what has happened to people like Matt Reif is people go to his shows and try to talk. So he, he inter interacts with them, posts it. So then they could comment on that post, that's me, and they can maybe get followers from it. And all of that to me is a sort of cynical transactional relationship that I think can sully an art form. Um, and uh, so, and, and and why I say it could bring down comedy is sort of the, the, the prevailing theory of why the comedy, comedy boom ended in 1992 is that the product got so watered down that people didn't feel the need to go to it anymore. They're like, why am I going to go to a comedy club? It's just going to be, they didn't have the word hacks, but now we have the word hacks. It's just going to be like the same airplane food, all the cliches, right? So they're like, I'm not going to go for it. There's comedians on TV. And so... Once the live business starts drying up, everything else starts drying up. So that that's the fear. But um, it's not like crowd work itself. It can be is is a poison. But like the, the sort of like leaving yourself at the disposal of algorithms that like do not care about our humanity. I think is like maybe not good for an art form. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're also talking to college professors and crowd work is part of what we have to do in order to maintain student attention. So yeah, uh, so you you see it like an inspiration. You're like, oh, that's how I do it. What do you do for a living? I'm a student. (laughs) F minus. Although although I found that they they don't like being uh, ragged on now in the ways they used to, and I, I don't know if that's just me getting older or or, or shift in sensibility as you point to, but yeah. I I mean we've talked about stand up. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if we can shift the conversation to sitcoms, um, because one of the things we've been talking about in my class recently, right, is like you know the bear is winning awards as a comedy, and it's like, is it? Is the bear should the bear be beating out? Um, you know, Abbott Elementary, which to me is Abbott Elementary. I, I've seen things that have said, you know, it's saving the sitcom. And yet in some ways it's just like faithful to the core of like how the sitcom works. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I have, I love that show. I watch it regularly. I'm a big admirer of Quinta Brunson's work. Um, but I think in terms of what that show's doing, right. But more or less, right. It, it's, it's very, um, it's it's a great admirer of the tradition it's in, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to, I think, these shows like The Bear and, and Reservation Dogs, which are what we would call in the Academy gender hybrid, genre hybrids, right? Mm-hmm, yes. Like, you know, and and you refer to as post-comedy. So yeah. I'm going to stop rambling and instead kick it to you for your thoughts on, like, where the hell is the sitcom? Is it is it on life support? Is it doing just as well as ever? And, and where does your idea of post-comedy fit into this? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think... Part of the difficulty is sitcom is like a broadcast form, I think probably. Like I think a lot of sitcom structures are created to get the most people possible on board to sort of like laugh together, I guess I'd put it. And as you know, media it's like it's such a cliche I've already brought it, but it's medium fragments and audiences are sort of smaller and you're making your work for people who who sort of already have the cultural context to understand how to perceive it. These things break down. Um, There's sort of, there's sort of two takes on the sort of idea that the the bear words Emmys. I I think there's, um, I'll say, start with the negative take because I think the positive take is going to take longer. The negative take is the reason it's winning Emmys is because um, people don't respect funniness. They don't, they think funniness is a, is less artful than being serious. They think seriousness is more serious because that's the same word. And so when they see a show that seems serious, they're like, well, this is important. This is what important is. Jokes is not as important. They don't know how to value comedy just for being funny. And I think it's harder because like, obviously um, what is funny is is subjective where like what is dramatically compelling is maybe a little bit less subjective. Um, so the sort of negative is like it's really being rewarded because the people that are voting on it don't think like what comedies normally do is that good. So they're like, well, this is what a good comedy looks like. This seems prestige because everyone's being serious. And, and you know, and that's rooted in 150 years old ideas of what highbrow and lowbrow is, which I guess will obviously touch on the book. And, it, and so many of our ideas of what lowbrow is were created in in congress with um not work were created in spite uh no where um many of our ideas of what lowbrow is are like what comedy is and 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 even the basic idea of laughing in public is the sort of thing that previous versions of snobs would look down upon so when i see something's bearing the emmys i'm like that's bad because 
it's saying that things that make you laugh are worse because they make you laugh. Now, the case for the bear being a comedy and that it's good. Um, why I like having this conversation is it's funny because it's like essentially a type of conversation that happened for all other art forms 75 years ago, uh, which is like, is the thing still a thing if it doesn't give you the thing that you most associate with the thing? Uh, and the sort of basic case for the bear as a sitcom is uh, first on a practical level is developed through the FX's comedy department, like an FX, like a a network executive that worked in comedy, greenlit the bear and oversaw the bear. It was part of a deal with Hiro Murai, who is got the deal because he directed um, Atlanta and is seen as a person who could do a certain type of comedy. Um, also, I've talked to a prominent cast member of the show, and they were cast on a show that they thought was a comedy. That's what they were told it was going to be it. But my basic case for it is a comedy or what I call post-comedy. So the idea of post-comedy is things that that follow the form of comedy, but with not necessarily um, a prioritization of like the thing we think of what you get from comedy, which is laughter. And, and, and in that is that it still follows in an abstract sense how jokes work, which is sort of tension and relief or tension and release. But the tension part lasts for a really, really, really long time. Like, arguably, the tension part lasts for nine episodes of season one of The Bear. Like, truly, the release comes in the last 10 minutes of the season season one finale, uh, which I won't spoil. But, uh, and I, I, I partly see that because I accidentally watched that episode first. So I watched the entire show knowing there was going to be this sort of punchline to it. And... And because I think of it as a show that's so re so built upon tension and release, it's just sort of the amount of tension increases. To me, that follows a comedic uh, vocabulary. Um, also, they you know, and then you just they cast a lot of funny people on the show. They don't cast a lot of serious actors. A lot of the even the sort of more dramatic actors are people like Jeremy uh, Allen White and Eben are people who, though they're dramatic actors, were working in comedies before and the more serious comedies like girls or shameless um and it's a comedy because for my purposes it's useful to think of it that way like it doesn't matter but like i think it can be seen that way and when you do it expands what you think of when you think of a tv comedy is and i am always for expanding the definition of things um as long as it's not to spite things that i also like and i don't think that's happening i just watch. I, i've been watching the new episodes of girls five ever there's like just big old 30 rock jokes in that thing. And no one's saying it has to run away. I don't know if it's going to win an award, but like those awards don't mean anything. The types of shows that like, <laughs> you know, so um, I think it's like, ultimately they're just sort of more of everything. At least right now we'll see what happens when things start condensing. Like if, but um, it's just sort of expanding what we mean by funny and not necessarily meaning laughing all the time. Because there's lots of shows that we thought are pretty funny that you laughed less than the shows that you laugh all the time, right? There's there's always a gradient. So what if that gradient meant nine episodes and then you laugh a little bit to yourself at the end? I don't know. Yeah, I you know I'm still mulling over your answer about about different sensibilities and that being the the reason for different changes we see because it's so hard to hold that in my mind across all these different media and spaces and our society that you've gestured to already, right? Like the guy yeah. who's selling out Madison Square Garden and it's Joe Rogan adjacent. There's a reason though that we don't know about him, right? Like all, everybody on this podcast doesn't. 
Um, but I don't want to go there now. I just want to <laughs> maybe pivot to, because a lot of the humor you talk about in your book is of a certain character, ideologically and otherwise, right? It fits yeah. in a certain place in our society. It's not like you're talking about overly edgy humor or anything. And you do, even in your answers, kind of, I would say, conf oh, shy away from certain kinds of controversy. And so you have a whole chapter on politics, for example, and all the jokes that are made about Trump but you don't broach the very obvious thing that Trump is hilarious. Mm. Trump yeah, is I'd... hilarious. <laughs> like, that's why he's popular. He's hilarious. Trump is funny. He's very funny. And he's funny for many of the reasons that you name in your book, expert timing and ability to play the crowd and context very well. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I made it a particular case not to talk about Trump because it's a, I, he's not a comedian. I understand he is funny, but like I, I make a pretty clear I want to make a clear distinction in the book that I'm not just talking about funny people. I'm trying to talk, try to keep it as much as possible to the art form, which I understand your point. But that was just sort of like, why not Trump? Now, like, why did? So then it's like, are there people who are conservative that are that I talk about in the book? There, there are. I mean, like, I believe Adam Sandler is a registered Republican or whatever. And like, but I, I understand you mean where I don't spend as much time. I don't spend as much time sort of celebrating the transgressors, but I do spend some time celebrating transgressors. Even the chapter I write about political correctness, broadly defined, the sort of chapter about the line, I do spend like the first 3,000 words defending the case for why it's good that people do it. Now, I then make the case for why that reasoning might be limited, but I do feel like I wanted to make sure that, that I don't undercut too much the case for why the sort of more idealized version for why you might go to a comedy space and want people to say words that don't exist in other spaces. Um, I then hope that if you're doing that, these are other considerations. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing about Trump being funny, I mean, that that's, that's the thing that sort of appeal. That's the sort of bigger question, which is sort of like, we clearly like value funny people. And like, he does a lot of things that a comedian does for people. And I think part of his value as a cultural product before he even was running for president is that he sort of, spoke to an audience that didn't have many um, people who are being funny and conservative. They were funny conservatives, but they were not like using it ideologically. And I think that is ultimately part of the main reasons why he's not a comedian is that he definitely starts ideologically. Well, actually, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if he often starts ideologically first. Like sometimes he he does the joke first because his brain is whatever his brain is. But he's consumed ideologically first. And I think um, that is like often when we have conversations about like what conservative comedy is and isn't, it it becomes a little bit focused on um, the sort of people who are doing ideologically conservative comedy opposed to like comedy that is conservative but not ideological first, where like I think most liberal comedians that I know and spoke to and research, if not every single I don't know if I've ever had one who would be like, I don't start with what's funniest first and then whatever, right? But there's a clip I just watched of Jon Stewart being like, oh yeah, he was being confronted by someone who was like, see, you um, you don't care about the politics. It's like, no, I don't say I don't care. It's just not what we're doing first. We're trying to do a comedy show first. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think the, I think there's the bigger point to your question, which is like, the book leans towards the comedy that I find more interesting, not necessarily the comedy that I only like. There's comedians that I write, I think, quite passionately about that I don't particularly like. I don't particularly wouldn't watch it on a Saturday night for fun um, because I think I have to try to make an analysis that is difficult and try to make it 
understandable for people and it's useful if I like have a better grasp on what they're trying to do. I mean, the hope, and this is a, a, I don't know if it's even possible, but my hope is people would take what I write in the book and apply it to comedians that I don't like at all, who I think are actually quite bad. But um, the Trump, but Trump, I, 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 if you think like I recently write about, like, if you feel like Trump does a lot of the things that I say in the book comedians do, then like, that's kind of what I'm hoping people would do, which is apply their understanding to like, oh, he's creating a state of play and trust for his audience. Like he's doing all the stuff. It's just sort of like, um, I, it, because so much of the book is trying to convey it's an art form. I want to really delineate between the jokes people might tell on the street and like what the art form is created by people. And that's like the, the thing that they're doing. I hear you on some level. Um, but it's like the conversation has been ranging from TikTok creators, right? Yeah. Right. You start in your in your book with a history of stand up that begins with how stand up itself grew out of this kind of blurred yeah. space of the political speech, also vaudeville and minstrelsy, the stump speech and minstrelsy. You don't mention the stump speech, but I get you. You mentioned the Lyceum, and you're thinking about this sort of trajectory for why stand up in the U.S. is such a sort of popular um, and sophisticated. Uh, form of cultural expression, right? More so than any other country that we could point to. And so, so some a little bit that seems like, well, Trump's not a comedian, but it's like, to some people, he might be, right? Yeah. Like that might be an important dimension of how they understand him. So that was just that was just a question as I was thinking about how you responded to some of this, because some of your answers are for me. I don't know if it's the same for Pete, a little hard to to grasp in the sense that on one hand, we're expanding comedy. And so as long as folks are sitting in front of an audience and calling themselves a comedian, we should maybe give them the benefit of the doubt but someone like trump who has incorporated humor it seems to me into how he presents as a public figure is not deserving of sort of critical attention because he hasn't called himself a comedian seems like a neat answer like you know what i mean and that's all i mean not that and i haven't called anyone conservative or liberal that's not what sure, i'm sure. thinking about when i think about uh, a certain kind of approach to talking about humor that exists in our society uh, that's not what i said but I am curious about this question of, of how you're defining comedy in and out of things, about when it's okay to expand definitions and when it's a sort of travesty of the art form that we're talking about. Because I'm someone who I will say hues to very kind of strict definitions of stand-up because it is an art form, right? Sure. There's certain things that have been trumpeted as stand-up recently that I don't think is stand-ups at all. <laughs> I think it's just people crying in front of an audience. And it's great that folks are moved, but that's not a stand-up. That's, that's not a stand-up set. So I guess that's why I'm I'm having trouble landing because it and I get that culture is hard to talk about yeah. and that these are big subjects that require nuance but some of the answers seem a little clean and so my questions are trying to get us to somewhere that's more interesting and stickier right because on one hand you can say well what we're just seeing is a wholesale generational shift in sensibilities but I don't know that that's what we're seeing and so there needs to be a reason why what we hear in mainstream media is that you know, comedy is becoming more compassionate. And what we hear from audience is something totally else in terms of their desires. And I don't think that can be mapped on easily. I don't think that can be mapped out generationally. And so I, I guess I just want, and I get that your book's trying to do certain work, but I'm just, I'm just curious about all of those things. Oh, sure, I know yeah. that was a jumble, but I did feel yeah, like I mean, the I don't... answer wasn't necessarily a fair one. Sure, I mean, I think my, the reason in the book I didn't, do Trump is what I explained. If you want to talk about Trump as a comedian, I think that is a a fair question to have. It's just sort of what I was hoping, why I didn't do it in the book was that reason also it was a, that chapter was the length and you're trying to think of like 
is this going to get me to where I need to go with whatever point I'm trying to make? But um, I think there is a question of, and I think that's probably how one looks at culture. And I'm sure that like, I don't know enough about the history of sort of academic cultural studies in terms of if people look at a top down or bottom up. And I think as I write it in the book, we're shifting to a more bottom up relationship to culture. So it's very possible that you could 100% look at what Trump's relationship to the audience is as a comedian. I mean, there's, there are plenty of pieces that people have written in that. I think Emily Nussbaum wrote a piece in the New Yorker that was using that framing. And, and there's sort of basic structural thing of like how he literally writes speeches is like how a comedian, stand-up comedian writes speeches. It's not unlike how David Sedaris writes, right? It's like, it's, which is essentially like, he's just riffing on his topics and then based on an audience reaction, that's how everybody goes. And he's sort of in the moment. And and it is not unlike a comedian. And and I think the sort of same space that has afforded him to like um ascend in the cultural sphere or whatever, or political no, ascend in the political sphere is the same space that like a John Stewart could have taken advantage of, right? Like I in so much as in in a mirror image way, which is like there were people, I believe, in 2016 that tried to get John Stewart to run for president, um, and I think it's 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 response. <laughs> and I I can't remember who it was, but um, this was a legitimate thing. I think it's in 2016, maybe it's in 2020, but I, I can't remember. But anyway, and John wouldn't do that because John does not, you know, John is coming from a certain understanding of what he's trying to do as a comedian or whatever. And and I will say, if um. I get a little in the book, but like it's definitely more clear now that he has done certain things in the time since The Daily Show ended and he returned that has shifted his perspective of like his relationship to activism. But nonetheless, like the the cultural forces or the societal forces that made it so a person like John Stewart can be taken as seriously, he has. He could have kept on going and he's like, I'm going to run for president. It's, I think Donald Trump is a completely similar thing, which is people distrusting a variety of people variety of uh media sources and politicians and he's seeing as an, an anecdote to that and part of how he got gained that trust is through comedy and comedy's relationship to trust i think that's 100 percent a fair point and i'm happy to keep on talking about it i just meant like that's not that's why it's not i'm not i don't write about it in the book because of that reason i mean i don't think comedy has become i will say i don't think comedy has become more compassionate um i think if anything the comedians who are less compassionate are more famous or more successful than non-compassionate comedians have ever been, right? I think, um, as I said, Kill Tony, this guy that we've now referred to, Andrew Schultz, are not doing what I would consider compassionate comedy. If you look at almost everyone, all these examples of people who are playing Madison Square Garden, almost all of them I would fill, file under not compassionate comedy. I mean, like, they, I would say it's a little bit backward looking formally in terms of like doing a certain thing, but, um, they it, all all types of comedy are more popular than they were. So there are more successful compassionate comedians, and they're more successful. There's a lot more successful non-compassionate comedians. Look at the Netflix special. Netflix is, if anything, is buying fewer and fewer specials from people you would define as um as a compassionate or whatever you would use. How do I um reckon with that? I, I don't. I mean, maybe I'm now asking a question that I don't know if you're asking, but I do think it's like criticism or our critics are not only reviewing based on like what's most popular on down and then be, and because it's the most popular it is the most worthy i mean like 
I am essentially trying to like create also a vocabulary of like what snobbery would look like, I guess, in comedy, right? It's like, I don't want it exclusively, but like, I do think part of it is like, you know, the, like Anthony Jeselnik is a very successful comedian. And, and I think a very compassionate comedian who's doing transgressive comedy. I think if he was less compassionate, he would be a more successful comedian. Mm. But I write about Anthony Jeselnik because to me, I think he's doing a sort of like more artful thing. If that, I don't know if that helps explain the sort of the gaps and maybe how we're understanding it. And in terms of the like what is and what isn't a comedian, you know, the, the, or what is or isn't, it's just sort of like what I'm, I'm arguing each chapter. I think it's a fair point that if I'm allowing comedy to ex include things that some people consider full on dramas, then it should include memes. Um, but that's sort of how I, I I decide not to include memes because of whatever this, the way I'm deciding to judge it. But I do think I will be proven wrong in 15 years when the me, the Gen Z me, criticizes my book for not considering memes as a serious form of comedic expression. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm kind of thinking through as as you two are having this conversation is is artfulness, right? And and. I watched the Shane Gillis SNL, and um, I think one of the things we see among scholars talking about comedy is this sense of like, you know, the tendency for insult, right, and that that it's not as artful, that it's it's easier to do. Um, and and one of the things that struck me, just kind of stepping back and watching Shane Gillis, was um, online people saying like he's bombing in his monologue, um, and others including saying, me. I have an article that went yeah. up like an hour ago that about what bombing, why it counts as bombing or whatever. Continue. Yeah. And, and, and how, how fiercely his, his fandom came out and said like, oh, he's really like, it, it was almost like, a, um, I, I guess we would think of it in terms of like Norm Macdonald, right? Where he's like strategically bombing to expose the audience, right? Sure. And so like for me, who's always trying to be like rethink my position, I'm always like, maybe something's going on here that I'm not appreciating as artful because of my taste or or my own snobbery. But that's not my question. I was sure. just kind of thinking through this. But I think I want to ask you something related, which is that, you know, you said at, at one point um, in, in your book, comedians can unite, they can empower, they can restore the psychic energy of those on the front lines of change, right? And and I'm, you know, and you know, as I was sitting with that, I was also thinking. Can comedians divide and disenfranchise too, right? Um, and is that still comedy? Um, and I'm just curious what you think about that. I mean, you know, we we are talking about these. I feel like the word we're flirting around here is woke and cancel culture, um, mm. right? Um, I don't. But, I believe I don't write. The only time I reference cancel culture in the book is in a joke at the very very end, and that's partly a purpose. Yeah, yeah, but also, yeah. I didn't. I don't want to date the book too much. But now it seems like people are trying to brand themselves as they're going to cancel me, sure. right? Including Matt Rife, right? He's problematic, right? And, you know, and they throw in like a transphobic jibe, right? Or, you know, something like this, or or at least a, a, a comment directed towards um, discourses of, of trans people's humanity to kind of show that like, I'm, I'm, I'm uncensored, I'm free, I'm expressing myself, I'm the voice of the voiceless. Um, and, you know, and then we get into that kind of punching up, punching down discourse. Um, I don't know. I think it, the the skeptic in me is thinking like maybe cancel culture has just become a branding strategy for asserting independence and an agency within comedy. But my my question I think still remains either you know whatever interests you more, right? Do you want to talk about kind of cancel culture and its place within contemporary comedy culture or 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 you know to what extent do you see comedy doing 
um, not just appealing to fragments, but maybe encouraging fragments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I it's. I'll see if I can try to answer all of it. One question, but I don't know if I'll do it. I'll start here, which is like when you are creating in groups, right? The you, the thing about comedy is you tell a joke, and the people who get it are a group of people. This is like the most basic understanding of it. Like the people who get it, Steve, are like, oh, we're all like each other. We're the people who get it. C can create it in group, and that is the thing of its its potential. It's not all comedy doesn't have to do this, but comedy can do this, which is sort of like united group that may be think of themselves as disparate, but they all laughed at the same thing, and maybe we're all more like blah blah. blah. It also like anything that creates an in group, like any sort of form of community, can leave the people who are who don't get it out. And when you have that, the nature of who doesn't get it and who's on the out can vary. And like, and I think a lot of that becomes, um, you know, when you, let's say you joke about, as is often the case with someone like Matt Reif or like Matt Reif is a good example, which is like, he opened his special with a domestic violence joke. And he seemingly did it in a very transparent way to be like, I accidentally developed that my in-group accidentally was this fan base. And I don't think that fan base is cool. I want to create a new in-group that will pick out some of the people, namely young women who don't want this type of comedy. Um, and he realized the thing that I noted that these sort of um, comedians are selling the most tickets. And if there is a sort of, I know not if there is, there is, a hundred percent definitely a case to be made for broadly defined transgressive comedy comedy that um frees us from the sort of tensions about certain touchy issues that allows us to sort of move forward together and have better understandings of it there's definitely an argument for that comedy existing um but as is the case with you know when things seem to be um, commercially a path to sort of make a lot of money, cynical actors come in and exploit it. And I think there are, I think there's a sort of mix of people who truly believe in the benefits of all the things I'm saying about what transgressive humor can do. A group of comedians that are sort of as comedians are people pleasers and they see that the audience is responding to a certain thing and decides I got to keep on giving them this thing because I'm scared they're going to leave me at any moment. And people who are who see the terrain and go, seems like there's a lot of people over here that kind of don't, are not asking much of me other than giving them a space where they can hear people say gay out loud is sort of the example that I often use because it's, I, it's easier to say out loud. And, and I... Look, having friends who are in the New York comedy world, they can list comedians that decided they were conservative or anti-woke, whatever, over the last five years when they realized they weren't going to have a mainstream career. Um, and you're, you know, and um, yeah, and, and you're appealing to people who sort of their relationship to comedy is just that, which is sort of like comedy is the space where we, like it sort of waters down the sort of um, maybe more sophisticated argument for transgression to just being like, I don't get to say this stuff at work anymore. I don't know if you like, mm -hmm. I, I always think of them as like brothers, friends, comedians, like the comedians, my brother's friends, like who are just sort of like, I, when did we stop being allowed to say gay at work? And you're like, oh, well, this guy can say gay at work. I'm going to pay $150 to be in a space of other people that say that not thinking of the people who are 
in the outside not being included in what does it sort of mean? Mm -hmm. And if I can just follow up with that really quickly, I, I think this kind of speaks to one of the points in your book that really hit me and I think is something that comedy scholars can take from, from what you're talking about in, in your book, which is the role of the audience, right? Like traditionally speaking, and there are exceptions, of course, and I, some of my colleagues listening might be like, well, what about, what about, you know, Stephanie Brown or Ian Brody or, you know, other folks, but a lot of the attention has often been on the text and the performance often ignoring or downplaying the role of the audience. So thinking what you're through what you're saying right now, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent do you see audiences driving comedy culture where it's at right now, right? Because like, it, it, you know, they think the historical, historically, right, whether you're a popular historian, whether you're an academic historian, we tend to think of it in terms of the artists are kind of driving yeah. the form. But I, 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 if I'm reading you correctly and if I'm hearing you correctly here, you're saying like, no, like the audiences have a lot of agency in where the form is and where it's going. And we can't leave them out of the discussion of the the state of comedy. Is that a fair assessment of your of your? Yeah, I, uh, yeah I remember. I mean, 100 percent. I think the second or third chapter, I shouldn't remember this. It's my book. Let me, let's see if I can remember <laughs> which what chapter audience is. Um, it's second. Right. So second. I use it. Yeah. So, and I, I, I did that because I do did feel like that was not how people engage with it. And comedy is a particularly audience driven thing because a lot of it is written in front of written in front of audience members. And also a lot of comedians are, um, as I write, I have the experience of doing comedy. I did stand up once and it sort of exposed the thing about being a comedian, which it's, it's quite hard. And the reason you do it is because the sort of the electricity of being rewarded by people in the moment is like the only way you feel like you could be happy or whatever, where other artists are happy to wait nine months for people to like them or four years or five years or whatever it is. And that creates a very specific, very direct um, communication. And, and because all for the most part, because the only way comedians know things are funny is based on how the audience react. The audience is deciding and, and they're finding what they're creating groups of people based on the fact that like, this is what audience is like. And over time it creates a sort of like self-perpetuating cycle. And, and, and as a result, like as comedians get bigger, they're only playing to the audiences that sort of found them because of their doing this thing. And, um, it makes it so they have to do less work to sort of appeal to people who are not that audience. But it um, there there there's a tendency, at least in sort of my world, of like a comedian says a thing, and people go like, "Well, that's not funny." And it and I go and it, I always brush up against me wrong because there's people laughing at it. Mm -hmm. There's they're they're in front of twenty thousand people laughing at it, and and they didn't get there without series of tens of thousands of people laughing at it. Like their, their material doesn't come out of a vacuum. So I, you can't ignore it. I mean, like, yes, if a, if a person is charismatic enough, anything, they can make anything funny. But like, even those, even those comedians are still putting in the work. They're not working as hard as less charismatic people might be, or what is happening particularly is, um, I'll say this, but this is maybe a little bit of tangent. Like the, the comedian of this, of a certain ilk because it is sort of currently right now have a lot of heat on it are putting out specials very, very quickly. So that's even less time in front of an audience. And I think their reflection of a mass audience is going to sort of uh, dwindles over time. Um, but like it, it, in, in some ways I, you know, I see a comedian 
And even if I don't like them, I sort of see them as a composite of all the people they played in front of. And when I go to comedy shows, I'm I'm listening to the audience as much as I'm listening to the comedian because I am mm -hmm. quite curious. Um, and I think it's fun. Like I actually think it's sort of sort of like why are they laughing at that as much as why did the comedian say that? Mm -hmm. They say that partly because people laughed at. Well, I have a question about who are some of your favorite comedians right now, so we can we can get feel for your taste in comedy. Uh, tread uh, softly, journalist. <laughs> no, I, 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 it is. Um, uh, I always say my favorite comedian is Christian Shaw, but like she hasn't put out a special in a really long time and doesn't have any interest to, but she still, still performs. Um, Gerard Carmichael, um, Hannibal stopped doing comedy, so I can't say him. Uh, Kyle Kinane, Jacqueline Novak special was really exciting to me. Uh, Rory Scoville, Mike Probiglia, John Mulaney. I'm just thinking of stand ups. Um, uh, what do I like? It's like partly I'm just thinking of specials I liked that came out recently. So it's like John Early special really like Zainab Johnson special really like Naomi Ek Paragon probably could make me laugh most than more than most people. Mm. Um it, sorry, I'm now just gonna think of comedians, but is that too much? That's, that's that's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to, um, I don't know what I was going to say. I was going to be like, I, I, you know, I lean towards people who are, who are doing something different just because I, I watch so much. But like. I was about to say, you you seem to be drawn to the formal. Yeah. The people who are that, doing form, formal play and, and maybe blurring the line with what some people may say is more performance art or is least drawing from performance art. Yeah. I know that it's a sticky distinction and I don't want to fight that fight right now. Yeah, but I, I mean, also, I know, also yeah, have like yeah. no vocabulary in terms of what is or was not performance art. And I, uh, yeah. thankfully it's not an academic. I didn't have to fight that fight. I was like, <laughs> I don't know, I can't into it. But yeah, also yeah. like, you know, like when I see, like ultimately, like I, you know, um, I see new comedians and it's very exciting. I, obviously this, mm -hmm. the, the, the seeing of new comedian who's not necessarily doing anything formally different yet because they're sort of new but their 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 personhood essentially feels something different like um the comedian jay jordan is probably the example i think of most which is sort of like he sounds like he's just doing joke jokes almost more so than like i had seen in a while but as i watch i watch him every other week because vulture um produces a show that he hosts and i'm like how what is he doing different than sort of like what sounds kind of like what vaudeville comedians used to do mm. and um and how will that evolve uh yeah there's i'm trying to think of young comedians right like there's this person francesca to uva who's so funny she has this mm. um who else did i like that i think anyway i've named enough comedians but i'm happy to also if anyone wants i'm happy to keep constantly list people names of comedians i like <laughs> who do you like am i allowed to ask i'm sorry am i allowed to ask you who are your favorite comedians i gotta admit that i i am much more in um watching sitcom and film comedy mm. mode i think than stand up i i mean and and my, my wife and i have tried like she, she's a fan of, of john early um you know i'm s s standard uh straight white boy answer but i i, I was a big fan of john mulaney um i had a lot of thoughts on his on the kid gorgeous special um having seen it uh when he was workshopping it on the road and then when he finished it um but yeah, I, I've I've found that um, a lot of stand-up specials that I start watching, I kind of lose interest in, and I, I feel mm. it's um, and, and I haven't pinpointed why, um, and and I wish I had a more thoughtful answer than that. Is, but I, that, it, may I ahead, ask sorry. when you go to have you do you go to see stand-up and also feel the same way, or is it specifically watching stand-up specials? Well, I mean, the, the uh, you know, I live in New Orleans, 
Right. So um, it, it's, you know, we, we've gone to see Mulaney. We've gone to see Maria Bamford. We've gone to oh, see um, uh, Fortune Feimster. Right. So we've gone to see proven commodities. Right. Folks, we know we like and, and we've been satisfied. Right. Um, I, I wish I spent more time in New York and Chicago and Boston where there's kind of a more of a I, I feel like more of a, a of a churn of talent coming through at any given time. But um in general, I just kind of feel I, I, I get a little bit of a shake the cane where I'm kind of like in the 90s, we did it better. Um, but I, I feel like I have to do more of a deep dive. So that's why yeah. I, I, I'm talking way too much for someone who doesn't have um, uh, a well-informed opinion on this. No, but, it's just interesting because yeah. I think there's limits to how the special has is formed is filmed still that make it not as, as fun and doesn't have the same energy. But I was curious that it's like, well, you see live comedy, you like them. Um, but also, like, I, I will say, and I do, Brittany, I do want your answer. So I'll say one thing, which is also, like, in the one growing up, when we saw a comedian on TV, that is material that's been worked on for, like, a really, really long time. We're sure. seeing comedians that are, like, 20 years in doing a half hour, and now we're seeing comedians who are six years in doing an hour. And, and this sort of overall feeling of, like, this is overwhelmingly funny, I think, has been reduced as a result of that. Um, yeah. Sorry. I, I think maybe my hot take is real quick before we transition to Brittany, um, is that um, there are some people who are amateurs who are doing very, very, very funny things on TikTok. Um, and maybe it's my attention span or maybe it's my appreciation for the editing and the setup. But I'm just like, I can't imagine what it's like to, to be someone who works in a more long form tradition at this point when there's free content being produced by people who are doing really kind of innovative and funny things. And it's kind of sad to watch them transition into more long form and be like, oh no, you need to go back to the short form. But th that's another conversation in and sure. of itself. Um, Brittany, sorry, go ahead. Uh, com comedians I like. Um, you know, I like uh, like Tom Segura is funny to me. Like Bill Burr is funny. Uh, yep. Like Sam Jay is funny. Um, I'm like you, Pete. You know, most comedy specials I turn on aren't funny. Um, but yeah, I think there's still funny people working. Also, I think there's a lot of funny amateur comedians who just can't break through. Yeah. And so I do think there are still, I mean, I found it really interesting that phrase you used. You said that folks went anti-woke when they, when they felt they couldn't make it into the mainstream, which to me seemed very telling. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are plenty of funny people. Like I, I went to the comedy, I was in LA maybe like a year ago, we went to the comedy store, me and a friend, and we went to like an early show and there was a ton of funny, I mean, the whole set was funny. It cost like 15 yeah. bucks. So, you know, I, I, you know, larger conversation that we didn't quite crack, but you know, it's, it's about, you know, about what, there is, are what counts as, what counts as, well, it's, it's, a, it, you know, the, it's a conversation I have with the aforementioned Jay Jordan, that which is like there are whatever mainstream is or still is, and the gatekeepers for that, and like there's so many ways around said gatekeeping or whatever. But then there's sort of other gate, right? And um, the, you know, and as I said, like whatever the the um, there's ways to find the things that you like in a lot easier ways. I mean, that's sort of part of it, which is like. Um, historically comedy was so so gatekeep and it was so just like people trying to tell you what is funny and now comedy tastes are being so built around you like you go on tiktok and like as you said there's so many people you like and there's another one million people who are doing something similar but not to your taste <laughs> and like the ability to find those things is like is is really interesting i mean like if you could watch stand up on youtube i think if you spend enough time watching stand up on youtube you'd be like oh my god there's all these comedians and you're like 
I didn't know that there are all these people doing this type of thing, but that you'd have to, um, the algorithms have that power to sort of get around certain gate keys, but then also like the algorithms have their own um, problems because they uh, have preferences in the type of content that they uh, suggest. I'm really thinking through the com comedians that Britney likes, right? Because a lot of them kind of remind me or were active in the 90s too, right? And I, I think part of what we're kind of talking about in the larger scheme of, of our conversation and in your book is the way that performance style and the relationship between the comedian and the audience has shifted, right? Like one of the things that strikes me about Segura, Burr, and, and Sam Jay, I love Sam Jay, right? But sense. that is like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, yeah, but those they are write like an the comedians. Stand-up show. They write it. You can tell it's written. It has callbacks. It's a set. It makes sense. It's a formal thing. Mm -hmm. But they also run the room, right? Like when Sam J has a mic in her hand, like I don't think she wants to hear from me in the audience going like, "You look good tonight." Like, you know, like it's just like, no, I'm. It's my stage, right? And and, and there's a kind of um, assertiveness, right? That I feel like. Um, what you're saying, uh, Jesse, about like comedians who um, do crowd work or or even are expected to kind of be more kind of like accessible, friendly, um, or even those who are kind of coming at it from more of a um, a less aggressive stance. Does that make sense? Right? Like my wife uh, had me watching. I can't remember the special. Is it Julio Torres? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah, do and it is. Yeah, it's like a very kind of like, what am I watching? Okay, I'm liking this, right? As opposed to like, you know, I'm thinking about like Chris Rock in the 90s and even today, right? And how he adopted that kind of stalking back and forth yeah. way that kind of established a dominance. And and one of the things I've been thinking through as I've been kind of just watching as a, as a fan, comedy fan is digital technology really shifted the power dynamic in the room with people recording comedians and then comedians producing comedy. So, I mean, there's, there's something going on here, right. With that's partially driven by the audience, partially driven by technology, partially driven by performance styles, right. That I think is really speaking to this, this fragmentation, right. I'm not sure if there's a question in that, but I was just, it, you know, I, I watch a lot of the clips that come up on TikTok or um, is it Segura talking with his wife, who's also a comedian on their podcast. And right. And they're just like, they're rough with each other right but you can yeah. see that they're like they're, they're in that kind of contract where it's like we agree to go this hard right and i think this hardness is an interesting dimension of earlier comedy culture that kind of in some ways is coming back in different articulations i'm not sure if there's a point there but i'm just trying to think through this with uh you know two people who love comedy <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's i mean they're sort of like a not like a let's say a primate level quality to comedy or whatever which is i somewhat outlined in the first chapter and and you know in so much as you're 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 playing with the comedian or the comedian's playing with you and it's about sort of who you trust and what you feel safe with that is that's rooted in our personal psychologies in terms of like what we respond to what confidence looks like to us and how to respond to different forms of confidence and different forms of communicating like often it's just sort of like the the sort of gentler comedians have audiences who like people who are gentler and it's not even like as it's i think audiences are much less political about it than they are just sort of like this is sort of the person i like to hear talk to me and how i like to hear being being spoken to and i think chris rock's an interesting example because it's like we have this idea of him in the 90s and he's sort of stalking and then like he saw gerard carmichael's special which was not that energy right it was like very contemplative and it's sort of like 
the, the special bow directed and he's sort of like standing and like mm -hmm. the camera's like investigating his brain it's like meant to be sort of very internal and he and and chris rock saw that and he reached out to bo burnham and goes just do your thing my next special do that for me no notes you're in control i want that experience and that was tambourine and then something happened i don't know i've not been privy to it he decided he didn't like that he did that and he re-edited tambourine to look much more like a chris rock special um i think it's maybe that he thought like the future was going to be like specials that sounded like the gerard energy and then realized like oh actually no there is a lot more audience in the sort of like um more combative whatever but yeah i think like in so much as that like a lot of you know primates play by like roughhousing like i think it's completely natural like i think that it's just really a matter of like is that how you play with your friends then it's possible that you would like comedy that's like that. If that's like not at all how you interact with your friends, then you'd be like, well, this is, I don't feel safe when people do this. It's kind of the same thing. It's just sort of like what, you know, like if if someone shouting at you feels like home, then you go see them do that. And you're like, that's cool. I mean, like, mm -hmm. I think Bill Burr's a really interesting example because like, I think his fans have a certain expectation of him. And I think what there's a certain danger of, what happens when he evolves out of that expectation of him, right? It's not unlike um, the, the sense is that there is a part of him that is sort of more sensitive that doesn't want to be yelling at it all the time, but like a lot of people are going, that's what they're going to him for. Um, and that's what's interesting to watch him is you're sort of trying to see him on the journey of figuring out how to reconcile the comedian who wants to talk about doing mushrooms and realizing his dad never loved him and the comedian who wants to like yell about how abortion is murder but it's still okay to do you know it, it's a but i feel like those the only people i mean like that's that's why i have a hard time entering into the conversation right because to me those things are alongside each other in all of his specials right there is no contradiction right his sensitivity isn't obviated by his delivery style mm -hmm. um and i don't think the folks who watch bill burr are some folks who it's like at my in my home they yelled at me so i'm looking for that when i go to comedy like i just these characterizations like they slip into how you explain things and there are little kind of moral judgments in them and i think that's what i was trying to ask about earlier mm. Um, because that is rife through all of the criticism on comedy. And we got to think about whether or not that is the critical, criti critical apparatus that will sustain really sophisticated humor, right? Mm -hmm. Comedians need sophisticated critics, as do any kind of artist. And so, so my questions have been in that vein. I don't think that we can say, oh, you like Bill Burr, you're a certain kind of audience member, even though I will say I didn't terribly enjoyed Jared Carmichael's uh, special, but I would have guessed that you would have, right? Just from talking to you. Sure. And so there is something <laughs> about sensibility to be said, uh, surely. But, that, but, but that, are you, you implying know, that you didn't like Bill Burr's special? I, I didn't imply anything. All I'm yeah. saying is just how you just characterize a general member of his audience. I, I, I'm not applying anything. I, you Maybe you like Bill Burr. That'd yeah. be great because he's funny. Yeah. I mean, I think... I guess I, I, I'm not necessarily making a moral judgment in terms of just sort of, I am maybe being reductive, but like, um, I try to avoid necessarily, I mean, there's parts of the book where I think I probably make a sort of, um, I tried as much as possible, not especially not in terms of like when we're talking about the art of comedy to be like, tisk tisk, how dare you make jokes like that? I do try to be like, why is it formally less interesting than when you're doing it? I mean, like, um, you know, I spend most of the time on sort of what I think is how Dave Chappelle's work has gotten um continually less exciting to watch 
but like that is not on a sort of moral level and so much as that I think it's just sort of on a practical level. But like, I don't... Well, you probably wouldn't narrate that as a change in generational sensibility, right? It's gotten less fun for what reason? I don't know. Well, maybe less fun is not the right word. I think generally Dave Chappelle has put less time in the time he takes to work on specials. And I think mm. he, um, as a result, mixed with sort of his ability to get audiences laugh because he is one of the most funny people that probably has ever lived, that he can get away with a lot of stuff. And as a result, the sort of like craft of jokes has become a bit repetitive. So I guess when I say less fun, I mean like the sort of rhythm of it. Like in so much as like, one, if you're talking about the same subject over and over again, it's going to be a little bit less exciting to see you talk about it, unless you're going doing appealing to an audience who wants to see you come to talk about it. But two, like he has relied much more on a sort of form of like, I'm going to talk seemingly earnestly about something for an amount of time and then do a sharp left turn, which is sort of like a more shock joke structure, which is like, okay, if you do that sometimes, but he's doing that a lot. And then to me, it's like a horror movie where it's kind of obvious that someone's going to jump out at you at any time. So that's what I mean by less fun. Like I mean it on, again, like he had jokes that were broadly what some were calling like transphobic or, um, homophobic whatever at the beginning of this run of specials and i believe my review of those two specials were something like dave chappelle proves why he's the greatest comedian live or one of the greatest comedians are live or something like that but he then like i don't know what special was on six or seven seven toppled down on it mm -hmm. he's put out more specials in the last six years than chris rock has put out period mm -hmm. So maybe that's the reason I was going to ask you, like, I mean, are we just talking about the arc of a comedian's career? Because to me, the same thing has happened with Chris Rock. Um, and I think the special focus on Dave Chappelle is always an interesting one. Oh, he's no longer funny. Is Chris Rock still funny? I, it, in my personal opinion, <laughs> I, I think mean, he's a, I think good at writing jokes. And I paid to see that. You know, I, paid, I yeah. saw one where he was wearing all white. I saw that in person. It was, I was I'm, just, oh, this was a lot of money for this. Yeah, I mean, I that's a real disconnect about both of them is they charge a lot of, for tickets for work that I think is not the work people think they're paying for in so much as like when you have the idea of Chris Rock 1999 Chris Rock mm -hmm. like I write in the book how much work went into those two specials probably the and I know the con you know like a lot of people rushed out specials after the pandemic because they got half the money and they knew that they had to once they deliver it they get the other half the money so and especially Chris Rock, who, if his process is famously taking a very long time to work, or the process that generated these incredible things was a thing of a lot of time, he knew he had a clock for this most recent special, which was, I need to talk about this before the Oscars, right? Mm -hmm. That's why they filmed it live, is so that he can get as much time as possible while still being before the Oscars. That type of time constraint is not going to result in the sort of, you know, polishing that makes a diamond or whatever, I think. And, and I think a lot of the thing that hurts the comedians that are trying to do whatever, edgy material or whatever, is that a lot of those people are, are the people getting Netflix specials on a very fast pace. Mm. So work that I think what they're all great at is the sort of balancing act of like, oh, this is maybe too far, but I'm going to win you back here, all that thing. That's the, like the, the Bill Burr thing of like, I'm going to lose the audience at the beginning, then win them back, all those things. That's like a beautiful work. It's an amazing thing to experience. I've been in, I've experienced Bill Burr doing that. That takes time. That takes putting yourself in a lot of audience, in front of a lot of audiences. Asking to do that in a year and a half might not be enough time. Like I think hmm. that has, it, look, it's lowered the sort of output 
I think of a lot of comedians in terms of like the final product. Um, and I think it's easiest to sort of pick upon the failings of, well, I, I think the sort of the failings of let's whatever this way of describing more transgressive comedians by are a lot very glaring in its obviousness in terms of like what is the failing of a comedian that's rushed out this work. But this there is the sort of um example on the other side, which is sort of like work that feels pandering e is mm. probably sort of the, the similar example. And like those criticisms happen. I mean, like, I think because those comedians are less famous, there's not tons of comedy critics willing to being like, oh, hey, just so you know. Um, I'm trying to think of the example of this comedian. Uh, of... Nanette, Hannah Gatsby, I saw her. Sure, a... great. Oh, That's a great example. Yeah, Hannah Gatsby's work. <laughs> Hannah Gatsby's yeah. work post Nanette has been definitely less worked on. Yeah. But yeah. it's like Nanette was a show that was worked on for a very long time. Now, like, one could feel how they feel about the part where um, they stop doing the jokes part, but like the jokes part, which was let's say the first 30 minutes was like least well thought and purposely structured where the last two are just sort of like, here's a PowerPoint presentation about art and it's really glib. And I think patronizing to the audience, right? I think it's the same thing, which is like, it's pan like pandering looks um, different, but like kind of feels kind of the same way if you're sort of detached enough to like, wait, they're kind of doing the same thing, which is like a lesser version of what they can do to an audience who wants that from them. Mm -hmm. And I think you're pointing to something here that really kind of speaks to this, right? In terms of like Netflix and its contracts and how it treats comedic talent and how it puts comedic talent out there versus how HBO did it and Showtime did it, right? Where it seems like there was more of a review process, whereas Netflix seems to be, you know, we support the artist, but artist and then also the timeline. Um, I, you know, this kind of exchange here, I think, is really stimulating and important because I think it gets us to also think about what is the role of the comedy critic, right? What is the role of criticism in and for comedy? And and I'm just curious to hear your your, your thoughts on that as you as you go to a show, as you sit down to write, right? Like, um, and and, and I'm thinking about this in particular because I work on theater a lot, right? And that's that's an area where we're seeing journalists lose their jobs left and right, or or transition away from criticism towards um, reportage, right? Um, and, and I'm wondering if, if, if um, how you see the work you do kind of participating in and contributing to the art form that you love. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the larger conversation about crit comedy criticism, you have to take a step back and like, what is criticism anymore? And the idea of a critic was sort of, built upon a certain relationship to a reader and it was a somewhat close relationship. You live in Boston. I write about movies for the Boston Globe and you have a sense of who I am and we're broadly defined, have a certain sort of same con shared context. Mm. And now you write, you know, a movie review for vulture.com or whatever, and it's just blasted over the internet. Someone Googles Gardens of the Galaxy 3 movie review mm -hmm. and they find that and go, they, they're like, this isn't whatever. It's like a completely different context. So it's like, it in, in many ways, I think breaks what a critic is. I think it's sort of this, which is a person with a direct relationship. And, and so with comedy, I, I, you know, I generally go back and forth with even accepting that what, that I am a critic, even though like hypothetically what I do is criticism. Um, so I try to provide context. I try in many ways to sort 
things out as best as I can. I mean, like, I'm sure I have biases in it, but like, so like the Shane Gillis example is like, it felt like people were saying he bombed because he said things that they were bothered by. He shouldn't have said these words or whatever. And then there were people who were defending him who were like, it's so great. He said those words on SNL. That's our boy, Shane, right? And I try to explain, like, I do think he bombed, especially his monologue, by the fact, and I, basing on the fact, it seemed like he thought he bombed and he acted like a comedian does when they bomb. And what does that mean? And what does it suggest about a comedian like Shane, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. and I, you know, essentially it's like, all I'm trying to do is um, rem as much as I possibly can, and again, I have biases, remove um, the the sort of subjective opinions that people have that are based on just sort of how they feel about certain people doing certain things in their relationship and try to just like, well, this is like literally what happened. This is sort of the rhythm of it. This is what he was trying to do. And this is why it didn't work. And this is how it seemed like it wasn't working because how he reacted to it. And based on what Shane aspires to do, why that seems to be a, a failure or a bomb, right? Like if Shane was a type of comedian who like just loved saying nonstop offensive things or edgy things loves and there are all those comedians like i saw lisa lampanelli a lot in my teens and she would just go and loved saying a lot of words and and at its best i guess there's a sort of carnival quality to that but like shane's not that type of comedian so if you are celebrating him for doing things that are trollish or edgy or not edgy trollish or um what's the word i'm looking for provocative um, or not provocative or um shocking okay. right that is not what Shane does. If you watch his other two specials, which I were a much better performance than you saw on SNL, you saw a person who wants the the wants the tension of you don't like it, oh you like it a little bit, whatever. Where on SNL, he just couldn't get the rhythm of it, and I mm. and it's not not on a, even that complicated way. It's just that he seemed really nervous, and when you're nervous, the audience is less willing to sort of go along with things. It's because it's not like people have not done. Um, possibly controversial material on SNL before, right? There's actually a lot of examples. Mm -hmm. So it's Bill not Burr. like that audience. <laughs> but, I mean, like yeah. Bill Burr, Lucy K, like did this stuff about uh, molestation. Chris Rock had a bit about why he would never go to the Freedom Tower. There's there just are examples. Mm -hmm. um, so that's so that's like what I hope to continue doing on, the, on a basic level is like try to sort things a little bit. I do, and this is sort of a broader goal, and I don't, and I've just started figuring out how to try to do this, which is like a lot of my work, I try to shy away from like, this is good and this is bad, right? It's like as best as possible, not morally, like quality wise. I try to be like, this is what this is trying to do, and this is successful based on what it's trying to do. And we're just here to try to understand what it's trying to do. And like, especially in my podcast, that's all it is. I have every episode's a different type of comedian. And I'm just trying to talk to them about whatever they are trying to do is. And because I'm uh, uh, how old I am, I'm a, you know, an elder millennial and I, I see how quality is not as sorted in algorithms as things that adhere to whatever the person likes. I see, I, I get frustrated because we have no shared understanding of what good looks like. Mm -hmm. And how can I figure out to reinsert what greatness in stand-up is, what goodness is, 
I, and I don't actually have the answer to that yet, which is not just like my opinion is this what it's good, but like, can we figure out a way so someone so we have at least the same conversations of like, who the great comedians are, like, there's something that. really useful, huh? Sorry, I thought you were done. Go ahead. No, there's like, there's like, I find it useful to be like Richard Pryor is the greatest comedian ever. If we have that baseline, then at least conversations are easier when we think about any conversation about what great comedy looks like. Can we, what, what are ways in which we can try to get on same pages with things? I mean, like, you know, like Marie Bamford's a comedian I often use because a lot of comedians will, of all different stripes will reference sort of the work that she does. Bill Burr's another example, right? So it's like, what is about them that asserts goodness to whatever range of people? Um, Ironically, the comedian that, that people most often bring up to me as good is Shane Gillis, um, just in terms of like, I think he um, had a real opportunity on SNL to like jump from playing Radio City to playing Madison Square Garden, but he will play Madison Square Garden regardless mm. um, soon enough. If Look, if Kill Tony can do it anyway. <laughs> I was just going to say like for us in the Academy, I think most people understand that is the work of the critic. It is for you to declare your taste and for you to yeah. be a chorus of critics who are declaring and explaining why it is they think a certain thing about certain cultural objects that are shared. It's not that the criti the critical evaluation needs to be shared. It's that you know, the cultural object is already this shared thing. And week after week, they see you apply your unique cultural sensibility as well as other critics' rigorous, unique sensibility. And so that's how they form their own taste. I mean, that's that's why critics are important, right? Because they educate people how to look, even if people have different ideas about what to emphasize in terms of what they think is most important. And so, uh, you know, I do think having an opinion is incredibly important. And I declaring it and defending it uh, to criticism. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think I just wanted something... to put that in because you were like, yeah, you know, what's the role? I, th I mean, that's you know, that's... yeah, <laughs> to me, yeah, the role. I, um, I had a certain amount of insecurities about it that um that were just sort of like rooted in like a you know it. This, you guys aren't my therapist, so I don't have to get into it. But essentially, <laughs> it was just sort of like, I you know, I did. I used to rank best specials, and I got really in my head of being yes. like, what, what, what are my what's the value of my opinion to a stranger who doesn't know me who watches two specials a year and I watch 150, right? I just couldn't reconcile it. And now I'm getting better at reconciling, yeah. partly by writing a book. I go, well, I'm the person that wrote the book, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, at least I wrote a, at least I can point to the book to being like, well, this is what you're getting, which is enough context for me to feel more comfortable saying like, this is what good and bad is. I think I felt just, I didn't feel like I had enough of a name. I didn't think Vulture was a big enough website to just, given up people context to know what they're reading. Now I feel like I have a little bit more, which is why, again, I think I feel more comfortable mm. Um, mm. asserting my opinion because at least I could point to like what my opinion suggests. I think it was, look, I would love a special list. At the end of the year, my favorite part of the year is looking up the best films, the best books, things that I might have missed that folks who do this for a living can suggest yeah. to take a look at you know yeah i mean and i mean that like, genuinely like i always yeah. said that end of the year yeah, I'm gonna I, have some films to watch yeah i mean part of the hard thing was like i also got in my head because they're unlike movies and tv there are there was only one person at the time like really doing a list and there isn't still that that many partly because jason zinnemann at the times for example doesn't do a list he does like a sort of story that has best things but isn't like a rank special list so then it's like <laughs> you're not in conversation with anything or just sort of like, it becomes so much more, um, uh, it, like it almost becomes like the definitive list because it's the only list that exists. Mm. Um, so if I were to do a list, 
you know, usually um, Catherine Van Arendonk, who is a TV critic, but also reviews specials for Vulture, like does the list. If I were to do the list, it might hypothetically would be with her. So then already it's not monolithic, right? It is whatever the word of two lithic is. Um, and because the goal is, again, to be like, can we have a conversation of what good is, right? I think that when we, um, you know, I'll often have her on podcasts to talk about her list. And then ultimately what I'm trying to do is help articulate her perspective of what goodness looks like. Um, but I don't necessarily assert mine, right? Like I think I mentioned mm. in our last year discussion about her list that I might've put Shane on mine, right? But I didn't have a list. So I didn't have to think it through what it means. But like, it's very possible I would because like, I think Shane was doing something exceptional at something else. And I think there's parts of that special that were like the best comedy that was being done. There's parts of that special that was not up to the level of his previous special, but blah, blah, blah. these are things that have to flesh out. Like, mm -hmm. and it's also the thing of like, how do you, how do you rank or review things that an art form that existed before people were reviewing it? So like, there is that sort of like, some comedians are not, creating work expecting it to be reviewed in many ways like mm -hmm. they're doing a set right so it's like a bill burr be like oh i'll touch on these things blah 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 right where a critic might reward something for having cohesive theme because that's a value system you might have well mm -hmm. he wouldn't even think to do that and also he's been doing comedy for 25 years and the idea that his hour would have a cohesive theme is um almost the exact opposite of what he's trying to do he's trying to give people a little of this or this or that that also kind of makes it a challenge which again is it exciting but it is sort of what makes it complicated in a good way hypothetically mm -hmm. well i think this is a great place for us to kind of wrap up now that we've reflected on the ways that can critics and, and scholars hopefully help us to kind of think and rethink about what we're looking at this has been pete kunzi and i've been co-hosting with Brittany michelle edmonds and we've been talking to jesse david fox about his 2023 book comedy book how comedy conquered culture and the magic that makes it work we hope you'll join us again next time <laughs>